Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the first day, or second day of a new term. Sorry, it's Tuesday, isn't it? Um, and a particular welcome to Tandika McAnuary, um, who is going to deliver the LSE African Initiative inaugural lecture. So perhaps before I say a word about him, let me just say a word about the African Initiative. We decided at the top level in the school, at the level of the school's council, that um, Africa should be a particular focus for the school in the next few years. In a sense, we've always had a strong focus on Africa. We've always had a flow of African students here. In fact, the numbers haven't fallen, but as a proportion of the school, uh, the number of African students here has gone down since the heyday in the 50s and 60s when we had uh, a large proportion of the school from Africa. Now, to some extent, that's inevitable as the opening up of China, etc. You wouldn't be surprised to see some rebalancing. But we also noted that in our institutional relationships with other universities, etc., uh, we had tended to be spending time building links with China, which had recently opened up, etc. And so we decided um, that we would explicitly rectify this balance and set up an African initiative, which has many components to it. One is that we have just recently signed an institutional partnership with the University of Cape Town. And one of our professors from Destin, Joe Beal, has gone down there for three years to be deputy vice chancellor there. And we hope that that partnership, and we've only got half a dozen institutional partnerships around the world, will develop into degree programs and research links, etc. Uh, and we have raised money, largely from our alumni, to have a new African chair. And Tandika is the first holder of that chair. And we are hoping that we can go on from here to develop more research streams on Africa. There are already quite a lot of people in the school working in Africa, but we're trying to make that a more coherent effort. And also to increase our scholarship funding for Africa and our engagement in Africa generally. We've done one or two interesting things recently. We did a climate change conference uh, in Kigali in Rwanda um, on climate change and human rights in Africa, which I attended, which Conor Geerty from the Law Department promoted. Uh, and so we've been doing a range of interesting things, but we really want to raise our game in terms of the LSE's engagement with the African continent and the issues surrounding its development. And as part of that, say we were delighted to be able to attract Tandika Makandawiri uh, to the school. Um, he is, uh, in a certain sort of way, Swedish, um, <laughs> though he um, hides it quite well, uh, <laughs> actually. Um, but really uh, is from uh, Malawi. Uh, he's an economist with many years' experience in comparative research on development issues. Uh, he studied at Ohio State and the University of Stockholm. I guess that's where he found a spare Swedish passport, probably in someone else's bedroom. Um, and, um, 
was uh, Secretary of the Council for Development of Social Science Research uh, in Africa, in uh, Senegal, uh, and then uh, worked for UNRIST. I can never quite remember what UNRIST stands for. United Nations Research Institute for Social Research Research Institute for Social Development. Okay, right. Uh, and did that uh, from 1998. And has many other uh, appointments on editorial boards of journals in relation to uh, Africa uh, and all kinds of other things. And we are delighted to have him in the school. Uh, we are quite sure that his presence here will be the catalyst we need uh, to get this initiative really moving. Uh, he is going to speak tonight on Running While Others Walk, the Challenge of African Development. So I hope that the LSE community will welcome him here to the school tonight. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's, a, it's a great pleasure and an honor to be, to, uh, to be here tonight to give this inaugural lecture. And, and also being the first holder of the chair is obviously, from a, on a personal level, a great, great honor. I happen to be of the generation that grew up when people like Nkrumah were big names. And therefore, having a chair at a place that somebody like Nkrumah went to is personally, actually, such a great, pleasant surprise, if you like. Uh, I didn't know that I'd be making an inaugural lecture when I, I was offered the job. I was, only told, <laughs> I was only told after the fact that that's what I would be doing. And so I tried my best to find out what it means, um, what, what does an inaugural lecture at LSE look like? What is it, what's it all about? And it turns out there are very few regulations about it. Uh, the other universities have very clear regulations, when you speak, who speaks, what time, and how long, and LSE is much more, it's highly improvised. About it. But I found that generally in the British system, the, the inaugural lecture is supposed to provide the new professor the opportunity to profess what they'll be professing the next, you know, for the rest of their lives. And I don't intend doing that. Instead, I found something else by the historian Richard, uh, Richard, uh, Richard Tony, uh, when he gave his lecture here in 1932, he, he gave another reason for giving a lecture, and he says, and I quote, to indicate the claims of the Department of Knowledge represented by the lecturer against bold, bad men who would question his primacy. <laughs> and I intend to exploit that, and to, because I suspect that in my case, there must be some bold, bad men and women who, who would be persuaded that the title Africa Development is, is, is an oxymoron. Um, and um, because in a sense, the title itself indicates, suggests two, uh, two words that actually in, in, in social sciences are debated. Some would question the idea of an African chair. Uh, because imagine a chair for a continent with 57, 53 seven uh, state nations, seven time zones, thousands of languages, at least seven climates, and a billion inhabitants, and I found out, my big surprise, 14 million mutually contradictory proverbs. 
And this is African continent uh, that the, the term Africa covered. But I hope that you will you bear with me if we continue with indulgence, the belief that actually one can talk about Africa as, as one place. Uh, the second problem, of course, is not, uh, besides the complexity of the, of the continent, is the significance of Africa itself. Uh, and I think the director made a very interesting point about how in the past attention was paid to China and people paid attention to uh, Latin Brazil and, and Africa was, uh, in a sense, uh, marginal. Uh, this, this specter of irrelevance uh, has, from time to time, haunts African studies. You know, there's sometimes when uh, you know, uh, Africa is off the map and sometimes it's put back on the map. There was some years ago an article by uh, The Economist which actually argued that where Africa would disappear, nobody would notice. Um, I suppose that nobody did not include the Africans, of course. <laughs> uh, and definitely it didn't include uh, many friends of Africa, it's African diaspora, and did not include, I, I, I suspect, the London Metro Exchange, FIFA, and the, 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 the Premier League in the UK. <laughs> um, so I think Africa matters. But even if, even if we agreed that this thing called Africa makes sense, we would still have to um, contend with the fact that the notion of African development places the chair between, and I've heard people actually suggest that, actually ask questions about that, are you in development or are you in area studies? Uh, that it places the, you know, the chair in between two, uh, two domains of study that in themselves are not always uh, comfortable within the universities. Um, some, somebody has called area studies as modest, colorless, and, and, and ambiguous. And so that's part of the African part of it. Uh, and yet, and the, on the development side of it, there's been, um, in the last two decades or so at least, some very strong questions about the possibility, the morality, the relevance, the sustainability, and even the health of, of the idea of development itself. So being a chair of Africa development, one has to explain why one, why Africa and then why development. Uh, but then I, and also we know that within the disciplines there are a lot of questions raised about the relevance of, uh, of both uh, uh, African studies and development studies to the disciplines. Uh, I was looking at a, one of the publications I ran into was a, a, a book published by the Af Africanists in the US uh, who came together to, uh, to write, to put together a, a collection of essays to respond to the question by the disciplines on what's the relevance of African studies to the disciplines. Uh, and I think one, can, one also hears the same question about development studies. What's its relevance to, to the disciplines? My, my own question, my own response in general would be that actually it should be the other way around. What's, what's the relevance of the disciplines to the plight of the people who's in, the, in, 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 in such parts as, as is in Africa? Anyway, um, LSC seems to believe that those two matter, so I'll, I'll assume that I'm on safe, safe grounds here, that, <laughs> that both African and development, uh, the combination does not, is not as incongruous as it appears. Now, I want... Um, the, the second part of the story, which is development, as I said, development itself is not, um, uh, at least when I studied economics, it was a good thing to do development. And 
my first interest in development was sparked by a conference I attended as a young journalist in Malawi, which was the first conference organized in my country um, uh, by the new government that the of the time, and was funded by Ford Foundation, and it brought to Malawi, or to Nyasaland that time, uh, big names like uh, Rostor and um, uh, Nicholas Caldo, and I was supposed to cover the conference as a reporter. Um, I was struck by the fact that there was a lot of debate, but I couldn't follow the debate, so uh, the, the issue of that newspaper did not contain the report of the conference, except the speech by, the opening remarks by the president. That was easy. But we, none of us knew how to cover, to cover the, uh, the event. Uh, but it sparked my interest in economics and economic development. Uh, and I thought, if I studied journalism, journalism, which was my profession then, I would have economic development as a minor. And, and so I've maintained the interest in, 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 in the subject. So it, was, it, it came, of course, later on as a big surprise to, to read that actually the whole subject might be a wrong thing to do. Uh, that um, there were questions about whose idea was it anyway? Who, who, who drives development? Who wants development? What, what makes people want development? And um, is it technology driving us blindly towards uh, a dead end, uh, an environment dead end? Is it a Western imposition on the, on the developing countries to, to want to be like the West? Uh, is, it, um, is it just uh, in the nature of human beings to, to emulate others and, and learn from others? Or is it s simply the fact that the poor, poor countries have no idea where they're going to? And, um, and quite remarkably, quite a lot has been written about, about those issues. And, and I think that um, that, for my generation anyway, it came as a surprise because uh, the issue was not whether development should occur or not. There were a lot of fights about, you know, the, who be, you know, the kind of who, who be running it, what, how you distribute the, the returns of development, and how, you know, who shares, how you share the costs. And so but anyway, this, this new debate that came up has raised uh, a number of debate, a number of issues, and in, and the, people talked about the myth of development. Uh, development was in crisis, and there were calls for post-development that go beyond development. And so forth. I want perhaps to say, among one of the things I want to say here, was that I think it's very important. Uh, and it, besides that, by the way, besides this uh, new questioning of the content of development, there was also an assault on the idea that actually countries could deliberately develop, that they could deliberately adopt policies that change the societies. Uh, the questioning came largely from the failure of, uh, at least the, 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 the failure of many countries to plan or to, to transform themselves deliberately and uh, the argument that actually you're better off leaving this to the market and that the market uh, would, would produce without your uh, making too much of a fuss with it, they would, they would produce, produce the results that you are uh, long, uh, looking after. And, and so there's another, there was a whole literature again came in the 80s which suggested, it's the 80s and 90s I would argue, suggested not only was development morally questionable but that in fact development as an intention only led to interventions that would lead to inefficiencies and, and, and you know, the story is well known now, when, uh, it led also to arguments for structural adjustment and so forth. And the consequences of all that was, I th 
a weakening of the argument, on, or at least in the thinking on policies, of the thinking around development. And I say this quite conscious of the fact that the development industry is quite big. Uh, and I say that also quite conscious that perhaps in some countries aid has gone up. But I would argue that all the, those efforts are no longer driven by clear vision of, uh, of what development is. And I would also argue that uh, in many of the debates about uh, uh, this, this, this so the negative view of development, there was, I don't know whether one should call it a Western guilt, but doubts by the West, by the West in a way, about its own, its own, the trajectory of its own history, you know, the questions about the enlightenment especially. Uh, and from time to time, there are all these moments of anguish in Western culture. Uh, when there are serious doubts about, you know, its enlightenment. You know, you, you see it at the First World War, uh, response to the disastrous implications of technology on, on, on people's death. You saw it in this, after the Second World War, a serious doubting of the, again, of the, uh, of the enlightenment project. So they are, they are all, they are sort of, uh, if you like, cyclical uh, views about, in the West, about, uh, uh, the validity of its own experiences and whether it's wise to transfer it to other people. And much of the debate about development, I think, in the, in the, in the, in the 80s and 90s, uh, evolved around that. It did not see the other side of the coin, which is that it could be that uh, development was desired by other people. I think the, the notion that it came from the North and was imposed in the North, uh, and, and the whole debate and the anguish that raised uh, I think it misread the, the, the question. There have always been two sides to the story of development, I would argue. Um, one has been so the enlightenment argument, uh, but also the, another has been a response to the consequences of the enlightenment by those who became victims of, of the enlightenment. The, so that much of what is called catch up, catching up, if you like, has not been sort of from marching orders given by the West to the rest of us if you like. Uh, rather, in, in fact, the, the situation has been the, the reverse historically, that the West generally has not supported this notion of catching up. That it has, in the words of uh, Ha Jun Chang, generally sought to pull the ladder. And that uh, if you, and that the encounter with enlightenment for most of, of people uh, was captured in, 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 in the terms of the germs, steel, and guns, and that we have had cultures that have had to re respond to the, the guns and steel and, and, uh, and, and steel of the West. And within the West itself, the statement, the, the words by Hela Belloc on, on the importance of the gun in the history of, on the, on the, in the, so the rise of, of the West, when he's talked about whatever happens we've got Maxim gun and they have, not, and they have not. And that the fact that, uh, and it's perhaps ironically, the first people to be victimized, to be vict fall victims of the, of the, of the Western, of the military force, of, the, of this technology, it happened to have been my mother's uh, ancestors, the Ndebeles, they were the first to be defeated using the, the, uh, the, the Maxim gun. The point is that to this, uh, Actually, I'm told it became a nursery. Uh, there were responses which normally, which involved uh, uh, a realization that t we have technologically to catch up. And I think if you read all the literature by the earliest nationalists, this argument that we have to catch up, 
uh, in response to what was a, um, a defeat and humiliation has both been very, very strong, in, uh, uh, very, very deep roots in, in developing countries. And even in the post-World War uh, story, usually uh, the reference is made to the fact that Truman declared, uh, you know, so sort of, sort of launched development, uh, 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 development thinking after the Second World War, and which was followed by the Marshall Plan and, other, and, and various other institutions. And that is true, but also, again, partly true, because within seven years of Truman's doctrine, uh, within the same decade, of uh, Truman's declaration, there was a conference in Bandung in Indonesia where the third world leader, the new states, the new emerging states uh, convened and had their own version of development which very much which became in, in a sense uh, the language, of, eventually became the language of the UN. I mean you see it in, in development decades and uh, 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 the whole idea of um, third world thinking Part of that was shaped by that uh, debate. And, and I think that much of the debate on development, the, cri the critique of development, has taken on only the Truman version and not the version from the other side. And it could be that the Truman version, which assigned the West the task of developing others, may be in crisis. But I don't believe that the, the version that, uh, uh, of Bandung, if you like, which was that. Uh, of learning, of emulation, of catching up, uh, and of, 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 of seeking development as an emancipatory process is, uh, is dead. I, I, I find that, that that debate still goes on in developing countries. Uh, there have been vast amount of literature critiquing that, that kind of development on both, from both the West and, the, and, if you like, the South. But I think it's very important to realize that if you're criticizing development from so the Truman perspective is not exactly the same thing as criticizing it from the Bandung perspective. Uh, if you, for instance, it, if, if you, I think the, the language of the critique of that one would be about the morality of the North going into the South, about the morality of the North forcing its, its model on the South and so forth. While as that of the South would be about accountability about the what Fanon would call about the, the aptness of the new bourgeoisie to carry out developmental project. The reason why I say this, why I go around this very process, is because I, I, I think it's very important to bring back the idea of development back on the agenda, and uh, which, as I, I, su I su suggest, has been in a way um, partly because of preoccupations with uh, with uh, uh, with stabilization partly because of the doubts within uh, the, the developed world about the validity of the developmental experience, partly by the rise of new social movements that are very, uh, very uh, so called NGOs, that are very skeptical of, sort of large-scale endeavors like development, and partly by the irresponsibility, of course, of our own leaders in Africa. We've, we tend to forget that this still remains a valid concern for most people in the, in the world. Now, if we... But even if we agreed on that, we still are left with the question, can Africa run, which is my question, which is running while others walk. Um, I took this expression from Nyerere, and Nyerere said to Africans that Africans must run uh, while others walk. And, um, and it's interesting that even in Krumah, when, you know, in his autobiography, he starts off 
with uh, citing, strange enough, uh, Tennyson, uh, the poet, and he says, so many worlds, so much to do, so little done, such, such things to be. And, and I think both Nkrumah's statement and Nyerere's statement underscored the extreme importance for Africa to, 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 to develop, if you like. And, and I think it's this issue, the, the urgency of the, of the problem of developing Africa is highlighted further by the environmental concerns. Uh, and this might sound strange, but I, I, I find that everything I've read about climate change uh, and what they say would happen to Africa if it, sh if it, if it should happen, suggests that Africa has, if Africa suffers at all, it will be because it's technologically backward. That to respond to climate change, Africa will have to mobilize its human resources, mobilize its, manage its water better, uh, have much better management of energy and so forth. And that we should not accept some of the messages conveyed to Africa, plant more trees, grow more grass, and so forth. And I think the response for Africa, especially given the, you know, the, the, the fragility of, 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 of the environment in the continent, requires, I would argue, uh, massive new efforts at, at development. And, but there are very serious doubts about whether Africa, even if you say Africa should run, again, assuming we agree on that, uh, can Africa run? Uh, some of the literature in the last, uh, well, until perhaps the last seven years, suggested that Africa could not develop. The, the, the language you want, you read books uh, that suggested Africa was a hobbled giant, a continent in chains, a doomed continent, the economists called the hopeless continent, and so forth. And even in the academic literature, you, you have what someone has called except Africa syndrome. People say, this works everywhere in the world except in Africa. Uh, and today you see it in another very strange way where people get surprised when things work in Africa and they say, things work including in Africa. Um, I actually read, there was a, and, and, if, and especially if Africa f performs well in a particular thing, then it becomes more puzzling. There, there is, for instance, um, an interesting statistics, which is that people expect Africa to, because we have so many ethnic groups, we are expected to have more secessionist movements in the world. We don't have secessionists, we're very few of them. And that has been called the secessionist deficit of Africa. <laughs> uh, we should have more of them because, uh, and unfortunately, we don't, and, and uh, anyway, there's that uh, literature of being except Africa or including Africa is very, very strong. And within, in economics, there was a whole um, uh, study of what was called the mystery of the African dummy. People ran these regressions, and the regressions always showed that the African dummy was negative. Uh, uh, even when you controlled for environment, for uh, ethnic di diversity and so forth, that African... Uh, so there, there has been, in a sense, a presupposition that it is, when you talk about African development, you, uh, it, it doesn't seem <laughs> credible. Um, and there are volumes of, of, uh, of, of papers written on the impossibility of development in Africa. Uh, I haven't yet read a very convincing case, and, um, uh, and, and I've tr in some of my own way tried to sort of respond to some of these uh, uh, arguments. But I think it's very important to know that that kind of um, uh, discourse comes in. And, I, and I, even here at LSE, I've run into students who say, do you really believe Africa can make it? Um, and, and, 
and I, and I see the point. It's not, like, you know, it's not that as if one does not see the point. I think given the performance of Africa in the last 10, 20 years, uh, it's, it's, it's easier to believe uh, one, cannot, uh, one should not see development coming. There is a uh, saying you see in buses in Ghana which says, no condition is permanent, um, which in a sense I think is an, uh, to me is a very sharp observation of, of the reality of Africa in the sense that what has happened in the debate about African development has been a failure, I think, by the development studies to appreciate the idea of conjuncture. Things that are cyclical are perceived as eternal. Within, since in the, if you go back in the last 40 years of African economic performance, you'd be very surprised that in, for, up to 1980, of the 20 fastest growing economies in, in, in the world, nine were African. And of the nine, only three were mineral-rich countries. So it's not a very new, uh, uh, and even um, uh, studies on so-called growth episodes uh, in Africa and the world show that many African countries have, have had uh, moments of uh, not insignificant uh, growth rates. The main problem has been these come and go. They're cyclical, like, like, all, like all growth patterns. And, and I think the big challenge has been how do you manage these cyclical patterns without being pro-cyclical, making things worse. And I would argue what happened to us in the last 20 years was because the response to what was normal cyclical patterns was pro-cyclical and made things worse, that we, 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 we shouldn't, in other words, you don't judge a society by, by only one part of, of its cycle. You, you judge it through all the cycles. And I think that's what I would argue that was missing in the in developing studies. Now, if we agree, uh, as I'm trying to argue, it's very roundabout where, where I'm, I'm coming to get where I wanted to say, uh, that if we agree Africa exists and development matters and that Africa can do it and that catching up is important, we have, then we come to the question of what does it mean for knowledge? Uh, um, catching up by definition implies intention. Okay? You, yet you intend to do something, you intend to clearly uh, catch up. There, you could, there are any, at least in economic theory sometimes, talk about possibility that you can, con you know, the very fact of being poor means that you will, con uh, you know, you will, you will catch up but through uh, some kind of natural convergence. But the historical record is that actually convergence is conditional on your doing something about it. You know, it's, it, it's, it, it. Just being poor does not mean you'll catch up. You have to do something to, 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 to get that. And there, knowledge matters enormously. And I would argue there that, in fact, catch up by definition, as I said, means intention, also means learning from those who are learning, emulating, innovation, um, and knowing your culture well, so as to know what you can absorb, what you cannot absorb, uh, and, and a deep understanding of the processes of, that others have gone through. Not so you can repeat them, because the whole idea of catching up is not to repeat what I've done, is, is to leapfrog, to avoid, uh, to, you know, to avoid mistakes made by the past, to, uh, because what appears to the, you, for the, to the pioneers as uh, ex post knowledge or knowledge after the fact, for the ones catching up, is ex ante, it's knowledge before the fact. And I would argue, I, I have no proof for this, but I would argue that one could almost make a, a law, uh, perhaps an interesting thesis for someone that, that for countries that are lagging behind, they will have to, at every moment of, of the process, of the, at every stage of their income, in, uh, uh, per capita income, or whatever measure you have of development, 
they will have to invest more in education, more in knowledge than the predecessors at the same levels, at, at equivalent per capita incomes. That is, we will have to be uh, the poorest countries at that level of their per capita income to have more universities, more educated people, more primary schools than the predecessors had. Uh, that has been true as a law in other social services, that usually the latecomers tend to, like the, wealth, so the welfare state doesn't start in, you know, does start in, in, in UK, it starts in the Northern Europe as latecomers. But the latecomers normally tend to, will tend to engage in those things much earlier than the uh, predecessors. That's the whole point about learning, anyway. That is, uh, um, and we've learned also now that many things that were thought of as trade-offs between, say, growth and equity, or between democracy and, and, and development, um, may have been the case for the pioneers, but they are not true for the com countries coming, uh, following up. And that, in fact, uh, if they are smart enough, they can avoid doing this. So in a sense, what I'm suggesting is that if we bring back development, we have to bring the, back the question of knowledge at the, at the heart of the development process. And what we experienced in the 80s and 90s was completely, well, not reversed, but was a, 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 a decline. Well, the World Bank crudely stated there was an argument uh, mainly pushed by the World Bank, that because the rates of return to higher education were lower, where we should invest less in higher education and more in, in primary schools. That was 1986, and that has had huge implications. It meant that most of the funders, including private foundations, withdrew from universities in Africa. And, um, and I think that has been an extremely costly uh, mistake. Uh, this year, the bank introduced a uh, published report, actually, uh, which argues very strongly for higher education. Um, and the bank itself, a couple years ago, redefined itself into a knowledge bank. If you can think of any interesting ox oxymoron, that's it. But anyway, they, they became a knowledge bank. <laughs> and the idea being that they said, they claimed that knowledge mattered for development. Um, as it turns out, they had a different idea about what knowledge meant. What they meant, initially actually at least, is that they have the knowledge, and it's already in the bank, but that they have trouble sp spreading it. So they were saying to themselves in a way that, initially they said, if we only knew what we know. Okay. Then they changed and said, if you only knew what, what we know. And so their view of knowledge has been that we should know, you, you spread this knowledge of the bankers. I don't think that's what I mean. I, I don't mean knowledge in that sense. I mean knowledge in a very critical sense of learning and trial and error and experimentation and so forth. And that has very different implications from what I think has, uh, uh, has been. Uh, now, if, if all this is true, if knowledge is true, what are the barriers to moving forward in Africa? And here I may perhaps go on a more slippery uh, uh, path. One of the most striking things about debates uh, or development in Africa has been what you might call an anti-elitist bias. Um, you could be a, Gaul a Gaullist from France, or a, a Reagan Republican, or a Thatcher conservative. When you go to Africa, you're a populist. Suddenly, you, the elites are your biggest enemies. I mean, and, and, and the discourse changes, you know, and you find, and you find a discourse which ranges from an amazing range of uh, uh, ideological span about uh, uh, about the elite, and that unfortunately uh, was extended to the university. 
that attack on the elite, the local elites, was extended to the university as, uh, and, and you see a lot of, again, I put cite here, I put <laughs> citations of studies and comments by both government and non-government organizations who view the university as simply uh, an extension or a playground for the, for the local elites. Um, and I think that there is a, there's a dilemma about the development we have to uh, acknowledge. That to want development, if you like, to want to catch up, you have to know what you're catching up. And that is why, uh, whether it's China, Japan, and so people have sent delegations and missions to study, you know, to come to Europe and go to America and find out what they're doing. That is the whole, the whole idea of, uh, and I'm sure most of us coming from even from our small villages were told by our parents, you go and learn and come back and tell us what they're doing there. How come they're doing it and we're not doing it here? So there, there is an element in the sense that it becomes an elite project, not because the elite will make more money, which is the simplistic view of saying it, uh, but because it involves a process of learning and, 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 and of, of knowing what you're going to catch up to. And that has its headaches. Uh, it can easily be captured by the elite in terms of uh, elite exploiting their advantage. Um, it can be used in a very repressive manner and so forth. Um, but that is politics, that you have to find out exactly how the societies um, allow for knowledge and at the same time not allow those who have knowledge to exploit it against the society. And that's, I think it's a dilemma of every society that I, that I know. And, and it, it should not be used to argue, as has been argued again and again in Africa, against university education. And I think also because of that, uh, this, this anti-elitism which has then spread onto, into, into education, we have a very peculiar situation in Africa today that the, first, the empirical basis for much of what we call policy in Africa is very weak. Um, we, and the solution to that has been to send consultancies, missions, and so forth, uh, which is trying to actually to, uh, to address the larger problem, which is that the collapse of universities and the collapse of those institutions of administration in which supposedly the local elites were, were dominant means that Africa has become almost, once again, the dark continent, if you like. And the, the, the hope that through consultancies and quick missions to Africa, you can resolve the problem of knowing Africa, I think is, is, is at best uh, naive, but I think also uh, ultimately dangerous. The fact is that we need, and this is even for those who have other interests in Africa, we need a, a, a knowledge capacity within Africa. We need universities. We need uh, institutions of learning, of research, and so forth, that will facilitate not only uh, the African self-knowledge, but also the knowledge of others about Africa. As I said earlier on, because of the, of the, of the withdrawal by many donors from the funding of, of the universities, we've had a situation today in Africa where um, we, we, have, we have something like uh, we spend, uh, the, 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 the consultants industry spends $5 billion a year in Africa, and usually trying to find out things that, if you were to ask local African scholars, um, would probably tell you in a minute what you're looking for. Uh, but we have, a, we have reached a situation where you have your consultants from outside, the African universities are in crisis, Local scholars have learned that the only way to make money is to, to act ignorant, 
so that you can either you know be uh, invited for workshops <laughs> and so you have a charade of really where we're going in circles we are, and, and I think people who are very close to the business know that they, they know that this was you know that this is the situation we're in that unfortunately again spills over to the universities uh, because it's not only while as say, the consultants industry in the north might be the developed countries might be part of a small part of the knowledge business in our cases it becomes the dominant one and very and, 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 and affects large numbers of uh, universities by uh, tying down some of the best brands into uh, in those kind of activities and I think the because of that if we if you again talking to uh, I have happened I've been privileged to have often to, to work quite a lot with African uh, scholars and the sense uh, even our, our policy makers of moving in a certain you know, in a vicious state of, of ignorance one state of ignorance another uh, uh, state of ignorance it persists and we we have no um, uh, we've argued if you like the the, 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 the scholar communities when, when, when we have argued for uh, more reliance on local knowledge. We have, ironically, quite correctly, sometimes been told, "But your university is very bad. So how can you have? Uh, uh, how, you cannot possibly be relied upon because your universities are, are, are not doing very badly." I would argue that that, in a sense, the, this neglect of, of local thinking, to me, that, that is much more a reflection of the neglect of local thinking or what's going on at, uh, in, 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 the African, in the African universities. But that's another story, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of skip that. But, that, but I, I don't believe that you can have a scholarship or a knowledge of Africa that is totally de detached from what's going on within the scholarly community within, within the continent. This leads me to my final point, if, and perhaps comes back to where, the, where, the, where I, my, my thinking about the African initiative was. I think that if universities and learning are important, then I would suggest, uh, and if the, the, the kinds of processes that we have today, of whether it's consultancies or the destruction of local universities, are undermining uh, uh, knowledge in Africa, then I think it's very important that the universities in the North, those who want to be involved in the great drama of development in Africa, uh, do a rethink, a serious rethink, and and everything along a number of lines. One is their own mission. Uh, how, do they, how do they fit into this great problem of, uh, of, of, of development and the drama of, of, of poverty? To rethink their relationship with universities in the South and to rethink, to design is as to have an autonomous space for relating to developing countries. Because right now, much of the relationship between the universities of the North and the South is being mediated, at least within Africa, mediated by the aid establishment. In the 60s, African academics and foreign academics met in the senior common rooms. Now they meet in hotel lobbies and in resort areas where workshops are held. And that, I think, is unhealthy. And I think also from the African side, uh, it means also that if, Africans, if African universities want to become attractive partners, they also have to rethink their own role. Uh, and and it's, as I said, it's not a, 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 only one way. And in that sense, um, there are some promising signs and, from Africa. One is that 
uh, Africa is the fastest growing population of education of education enrollment in the world, um, which helps in the sense that at least we can we don't have to worry too much about the question of, of quantity. Uh, the question then becomes one of quality. There is a will, political will, and there's a demand, if you like, for higher education in Africa, and it's quite visible in terms of numbers. They are not enough, but the, the direction is in the right, you know, is, is, is right one. There is also um, part of, of democratization. African universities are much freer today, and there's a much more vocal middle class around higher education that one can, uh, uh, um, that is helping, is making the situation of working with Africans uh, better. And lastly, the universities themselves have proved, have proved, despite all their headaches, quite resilient institutions. So we are not, in a sense, starting from scratch. And I would suggest that given the importance of development in Africa and the importance of knowledge to catching up, uh, we, uh, the, 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 we have to position the university uh, and a much more central role than they've been allowed for. And I would argue, and as my, as, as, perhaps as last word, that I think that there are possibilities in places like LSE for creating spaces of interaction with African universities that do not have the old colonial uh, 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 baggage, but that are based on, um, partly based, I think, hopefully, on the understanding of importance of the when I th think the, at least for Africa, the, the, the project of developing Africa. Uh, and I would like to stress that I'm not saying that every time you study Africa, you're studying development. Uh, I don't believe that uh, all study of Africa is developmental studies. It shouldn't be. Uh, you can study a guitar playing in Africa without being called an African musicologist, I mean, development musicologist. Uh, all I'm saying that it, it does matter, that is, uh, for Africa, that people realize that it is this urgent task uh, of, of development, and if you like catching up, uh, requires a vast amount of knowledge. Uh, as I said, uh, like anybody coming to LSE is obviously impressed by the resources available here, and, and, um, and, and I think that if one were to reflect uh, much more intelligently about that, one can find room for, for, for working with, with, the, with, the, with the continent in an intelligent manner. But I think it's important and uh, this is perhaps the, uh, the, the last word I would like to, to, to underscore, that it's important that universities create in, an, in, 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 their, own, in their own way and with, with, with the resources they have had, relationships that, are, that build on the nature of universities. You know, universities are very strange places and they have particular features about them that I think they should, that, that they should use in relating to other universities. Yes, other actors will come in. Um, yes, there will be other positive initiatives, and we see it in Africa today. There's a return by most of the major donors to funding universities. Most of them will probably go into uh, uh, what hardware, in, into you know, uh, computers, into buildings, laboratories, and so forth. But I think universities have a very important role in providing the software for higher education. And in that sense, I think LSE is, is well positioned to play an important role. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to throw it open, but I'm also going to take the um, chair's prerogative to ask the first, uh, first question. 
But I wonder if I could just pull together something you said right at the beginning and then something you said at the end. Um, at the beginning, you said, well, you know, it's fine to say Africa, but it's 50-odd countries and however many languages and et cetera. Uh, and then one or, once or twice on, the, on the, the way through, you did generalize and you said universities in Africa are in crisis, etc. but on the other hand, student numbers are growing. But if you look across the continent, and you've had uh, positions in the past which have you know, given you a sort of pan-African, uh, I don't mean that in a political sense, but uh, you know, you've looked at the whole of the continent. Where, if you look there, where would you identify as, as optimistic places in terms of university development particularly, where, you know, of institutions that have managed through all the ups and downs of cycles that you described to have maintained um, a kind of capacity for independent thought and for nurturing scholars in the way that you think is so important for... for well, that's, a, that's, a very <laughs> that's a very good question. You're forced me to judge... But if I tell you the good ones, then I will be impl implying also. Yeah, well, I asked are, deliberately the for ones. the good ones, not for the bad ones. But uh. <laughs> well, look, I mean, God, that's that's very difficult to answer because I've, most of these universities, their strengths, you know, some in some parts, some departments collapse, and the, uh, the rest is going on well. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and the yeah, they're, they're, um, all I can say is that actually there's a lot of production by Africans going on um, and I and I think that wh what you are, I think the question you're asking is very important that we, we still have to, we, we have to do kind of a, a state of the art to know what's going on before you go on go, go but there are many countries I mean I many universities I would mention universities that were perhaps getting in big trouble um, the universities have survived have tried to survive well the University of Dakar you know, and the, the classic ones like Ibadan and uh, uh, and that, that, uh, Dar es Salaam and so forth that one could mention as a, uh, but I, I'm just avoiding the make myself enemies who I may have to talk to soon okay we won't ask you to yeah, do no, a complete, <laughs> uh, a complete <laughs> list but it's kind of interesting uh, in terms of you know if we're trying to think about how we help as it were to, to, to know where you might find yes, yes, models yes. that you could learn from anyway let me open it to let me uh, just say one thing very small basically, perhaps uh, an example of when we and sometimes we make me sort of think of the larger question of university per se. I think it's the it's the these very specific initiatives that universities then exploit that, that you cannot determine how they will be used. Um, I give an example. Some, when, some years ago, we had, I was at, uh, when I was in, in, at Kodestri in Dakar, we had a grant program which was funded by Rockefeller Foundation, which gave people money for six months to do their sabbaticals. And they would choose the library they wanted to, and most of them came to, you know, to, to, to UK. And we were able to produce people who, some of the major texts in African development by people like Mamdani, you know, the famous Mamdani books on citizenship, Kroadake's work on democracy, and they were produced under that program. And, and from very different universities. Some of them you know, were doing well, some were doing badly, but you could create that space where scholars can come on sabbatical and do their work here and be surprised how productive it is. Mm. It's not costly, but it's extremely productive. And I would argue, perhaps I, should, I can say that, uh, that there have been four generations of African scholars since independence. The first one in the 60s, uh, so my generation went out and, and came back in the 70s, some of them came back in the 70s, and became the first sort of African professoriate. The second generation didn't come back, or they went, they, yeah, they came back and they went back to where they came from. 
The third generation haven't come back, uh, and the fourth have been trained within African universities, and they get their PhDs within African universities. They are the African faculty, and increasingly, most of the political leaders in Africa are trained in African universities. So these are extremely important institutions. Whatever the crisis they, you know, they face, they are producing the next, they are producing our intelligence, if you like. And so I have a much more generous view about them, you know, that they have to be back. Because in most cases, it's, it's the only university you have. You cannot say, uh, I don't have uh, Harvard in my country, I'm stuck. You have your, what you have there is that you, know, you try to make the best, make the best, and creating those spaces for them to, for academics to, uh, you know, uh, to improve themselves, to interact with others, to, uh, uh, I think that's very important. It's smaller, it's selective, it's not very demanding, I think, institutionally. Mm. Thanks. Uh, yeah, question right at the front. I just, oh, thank you very much indeed for, 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 your, for your lecture. I just wonder if we could, could uh, develop it a bit into another barrier, and I'm thinking particularly of health and particularly the HIV pandemic. Um, at a recent international AIDS conference, I asked one of the senior Médecins Sans Frontières people uh, in Africa uh, what, the, what the North could do, what the West could do, what the developed world could, could best do to help Africa. And he said, stop poaching their nurses and doctors. And it really is taking on a point that you just raised about you need to bring back knowledge, but you also need to bring back people. Uh, the infrastructure, you know, actually for the distribution of retrovirals in countries like South Africa, Botswana, Zimbabwe, where one in three uh, people are now HIV positive. So it's, uh, there is in this city, for example, a very strong connection between um, Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, a major teaching hospital with a very strong HIV uh, unit, one of the leading teams in the world, and Botswana, for example. Aren't these also the kind of connections that, that need to mm. be developed? Well, yeah, I, mean, um, I think, you know, the, the, just generally the whole question of what has happened to knowledge bases and, and skills in Africa is such a, <laughs> it's a great big story. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, I think we've, in a sense, introduced a language that makes us underestimate the capacities that exist there. Uh, if you take, say, I'm from Malawi, it's a very poor country, and if you read the figures, the capacity of that Malawi administration to distribute so much of the drugs in a very poor country, and these are very, you know, so, you know, it's not a high-level bureaucracy that does that, uh, or if you, you have this bureaucracy which can distribute two million fertilizers to two million people, you know, there are skills involved, and we, we somehow they have become, I think, for, uh, for kind of reasons, become less and less visible. Uh, and, I, and, and I think partly the, we, the university community, also have to blame for that, that we do not, uh, we are looking for ignorance in Africa, that we never see the knowledge that is there. Uh, and I think if, in that sense, I would argue that part of the problem uh, that those who are helping Africa run into is that for them to get money, they have to portray the recipient as incapable. I mean, and, 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 and that, I, and I, I don't, I mean, I happen to be once, a board member on a very quite, quite a large NGO, and, and, and I know the pressures they had on. You know, you have to you, you have to present a problem, uh, and, and not the energies that are within the continent. There was some yes, a woman uh, right in the middle. Uh, yep, that's it. You're going in the right direction. Two to the right of him. Great, got that. Well, thank you for your lecture. Uh, Amartya Sen in one of his books has argued that uh, primary education is 
what will really contribute to development. He's especially quoted uh, the uh, situation in India where he says there's more focus on higher education like their technology colleges and management colleges versus primary. And he said that's why China is in a better position right now because of more investment in primary education. Um, what would you say Africa needs to do? I know you've said higher education and universities is the primary focus, but don't you think uh, primary education is also equally important? Well, I, I, I think that the whole this debate about higher education and primary school education is quite, I find something quite misleading. That uh, One thing that we have learned in Africa is that you cannot have a good primary school system and a good secondary school system if you have no universities. I mean, that is, that you, and the World Bank discovered that in a very funny way. In, in my country, again, is a good example of what, how the World Bank responds to problems. When the government of Malawi decided to go to, for free primary school in 1994, we realized there were no teachers. Okay. So, the World Bank decided to support Malawi to produce teachers. And they were going to support the University of Mzuzu, which is in the north, to support teachers. But since Malawi had not reached the, debt, the full debt relief program, they could only support a faculty. They couldn't support the university. And if you check on the website of the University of Mzuzu, you, you find out the following, that all the Mathematics, physics, chemistry, and all that, they're all in the faculty of education. That's the only way they could access money from the World Bank. <laughs> <laughs> the point is that this is a system. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a system. And, and, and I think that most of the regression people run, they, you, you assume, it assumes you can separate it. You know, that you can actually have a primary school education with no secondary school, no university. I think you have, the whole system must move. And I think. I think people have taken Sen as if he was saying that, uh, I think what, what, what Sen is saying basically is that the Indian system did not, not all of it move, large part of it did not move. But I think the, it's important that the whole system, you know, the whole educational system moves. Um, yes, woman uh, over there. Actually, you give, me, you give us rather a good idea there because I, I don't know if, yeah, over there. You probably know in this country at the moment, this government has an obsession with supporting only STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, and math. So I think we should put Destin into their maths department. <laughs> and we'll run an MSc in the mathematics of economic <laughs> development. Okay. We wouldn't need to change no, any no. of the content, I don't think. Um, okay. Uh, I'm gonna extend your, your running and walking metaphor probably beyond its useful um, parameters, but just bear with me. Um, I think it was interesting what you were saying about <clears throat> catching up, and I think when you sort of look at the state of global economies today, there's, it creates potentia potentially an issue where you're trying to catch up with people that I think are running in an unsustainable fashion. <clears throat> and so I'm just wondering if you can maybe speak at all about the possibility of Africa perhaps playing a leadership role in redefining or rethinking what that uh, what it means to catch up and what, what race we're trying to run. Did you have any particular country in mind that's been running not, in an not unsustainable? Not at all. <laughs> no, <good. Thank> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I, I, I see where you're coming from. I see your point. It's, it's a very, very valid point. Catching up, as I said, I'm saying it, it's, it's learning. Uh, and learning means choosing and throwing away things. The, 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 the problem comes up when you just blindly everything, you know, you sort of linearly do what others have done. I can easily see an Africa that's, well, I'm seeing an Africa that is skipping, for instance, the, the fixed line telephone systems. I mean, you know, completely skipping that. I mean, most children in Africa have never seen 
fixed line. They, they have seen a mobile phone. So I can see that happening, and there's no limit to that. I think that that's what means. That's what catching up means. That means they do not mean simply, you know, uh, following this exactly same line as others have done. I think for the environment question, for this, I've, again, um, uh, let me get very crude about this. I think for Africa, we, the debate, when people talk about the environment in, in Africa, especially, I have a feeling sometimes that they, they think we, our, the peasants of Africa are going to be the gardeners of the world. We have no choice, given the, the threats ahead of us, to a mastery of technology, a mastery of water management, our, our energy resources and so forth. And that requires huge investment in education. I, I, I don't think we have any, you know, and, I, and I, 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 when I go to, to UN conferences, I'm always shocked by, suddenly at the end of it, uh, somebody will say, maybe we give Malawi $3 million to plant more trees. I mean, look, <laughs> I, 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 I have nothing against trees, but I, 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 I think this is a serious problem that is, you know, uh, that I think we ought to do more work on. We will not, hopefully, do it, you know, everything that Western has done, you know, to get where it has. You know, we, we hopefully will not colonize other people. We will definitely not, uh, you know, not a thing we avoid. But, but, but move, we have to, have to move. And I think the metaphor catch-up is interesting in that sense. I don't think it means every detail, you know, <laughs> uh, that become Europeans in that sense. That's not what I, I said. Um, yeah, man uh, in a blue shirt uh, in the middle. So I, I'll come to you afterwards. I, I saw the other blue shirt first, but I've, I've seen two blue shirts now. Um, thank you for your um, very wide-ranging topic, and I hope you'll forgive me. I was taught by Rosto, Nicky Caldor, but subsequently also by Amartya Sen, whom I succeeded at Cambridge for a short while. Um, you have talked about the problem of the NGO community, not your words, in mediating the development of Africa. And I totally agree that uh, um, development has been seen in terms of aid, and aid can only be a very small component of the whole picture. But fortunately, I have worked very much on the grassroots, and I've been very privileged to work in 35 different countries across the continent. And I would like you to be more precise because about the, uh, the, the potential and the challenges of African development. There is a huge famine looming in the world today, and Africa is going to be the epicenter, already the Horn, already Niger, and so on. You will know those issues better than me. How do we meet the specific challenges of lack of land tenure, of the poverty of the African woman farmer, of the low status of women, of the lack of infrastructural investment at the grassroots to improve the small-scale farmer. Those are the challenges, I would argue, not because I disagree with you on the need for more academic thinking and so on, but because there is an urgency which the world is not realizing. Thank you. Look, I, one of the, before I came here, I was involved in a research program on poverty, so looking, we, we're, we're trying to look at historically how those countries have sort of been able to reduce poverty, what did they do? Uh, one thing striking was that uh, most of these countries did not aim at fighting poverty. They were doing something else. Inclusion, citizenship, equity, education, civilization, <laughs> and, the, the, and that much of the pro-poor focus in Africa is misleading because it, 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 it gives an impression that 
there are certain things you know are only you know that are not for the poor and that's for the rich. I would argue and now the, uh, going back to World Bank again, which World Bank by the way, which was against infrastructure investment in the, because they said the private sector would do it. Now they have changed. Now they found out they, and they run this regression. They show that infant mortality around highways is, a lo is lower than yeah, away from the highway and so forth. The fact of the matter is that all, if, if, if you just imagine, like if, if, you, if you have my image of the disaster that Africa might face in climate change, it involves harnessing the Congo River. It involves massive programs of elect electrification and so forth. I think it's very important to, to bear in mind that the, the most effective policies against poverty are not quotation mark, pro poor. And it's interesting also, the Japanese have been very vocal about that, even within the international community, that this is misleading, because it's, uh, we think that something that directly accessible to the poor is therefore helping the poor. The, you mentioned the question of land, land tenure. The land, land tenure, again, that's another <laughs> big story in Africa. I think it's take, take me the whole, we'll just go on. Much of the suggestions in Africa, if you ask people, uh, what's a constraint on their farming? Rarely do they mention land as a problem. They will tell you labor problems, problems of credit, of markets, and so forth. For some reason, people have decided that land tenure is a constraint. But, but, but most of the interviews I've seen with studied people conduct and ask peasants, what are your cons the constraints? That's the last one they mention. But somehow, because there was a whole theory about land, property rights, and development, and so forth, people focused on that. And I would argue that, if going back, it's again and again, it's issues of access to markets, to inputs, to credit, to education, and so forth. And I, would, I, would, I still believe that these are, are, are very important. The, those issues, of course, do not resolve the issue we raise with the gender issues. And, um, and in Africa, <laughs> agriculture and women, the, I, would, I would argue but, but very strongly, we will never resolve our gradient crisis or question in Africa until we re rethink the gender issue in the African countryside. We will never do it. I mean, because women in African agriculture are not marginal. It's not like something you say, we can ignore them and let's develop. There's no way you can do it if they're not involved in it. You know? Yeah, next. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, uh, thank you for your lecture, by the way. Um, so there still exists a post-colonial uh, imperialist legacy uh, in many parts of Africa, uh, which has created this perpetuation of elitist regimes in power. And this cohort um, still insists on clinging to political power. Um, and in many ways, I think this is a stumbling block for development. So my question is, how can we prudently overcome this obstacle with the least uh, friction possible and uh, without incurring, I think, um, uh, tremendous economic uh, uh, difficulties. Thanks. Well, the, the, I mean, the, 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 if you, the experience of Africa since in, uh, independence was very early on in African, in, in my country, Malawi, after four months after independence, uh, we suspended any democratic processes, okay? And, and there were a lot of illusions that you could, if you had a dictatorship, you would get, grow faster, uh, you need a discipline, you know, you need hard work. I think uh, Amatya Sen called it the blast model, which is blood, sweat, and tears to develop. I think we've learned in Africa that that doesn't work. And, and I would argue somewhere, I'm sure I couldn't say it here, but one of the strong case for, for knowledge, if you like, is that the earlier patterns of development, uh, which we thought we were, were following, which 
were built on, on, on muscle, if you like. You know, you, you, uh, much more on brawn than on brains. Uh, in the classic case being the Stalinist model, if you like. I think that one thing that education can do uh, is to, in a way, to, uh, to remove that blast thinking about development. Okay? Uh, to rely more on, on, on brains and so forth. And until you, in the post-colonial Africa, that means, I would argue, Africa is condemned to develop democratically. That the assumption that we could have done it by authoritarian regimes, uh, the one party and the strong, blah, 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 uh, has turned out in Africa not to work. And, and it may have worked, some people sometimes, well, it worked in China and in Korea and Taiwan. Uh, my view is that if, well, that's their business. It, should, it cannot work, and it should, I hope it doesn't work in Africa, that we do something else. But that means rethinking, a lot of thinking. It means, but more important, it means a deliberative process of development. More discussion, more thinking, more exchange, more research, more knowledge to have a development path that is different from what we've seen so far. I'm going to take one more, maybe, over there. Yeah, that's, uh, thanks. Um, right. My question is to you, Howard Davis. Um, Thank you very much for the opportunity to have this debate today as LSE community. Um, however, given LSE influence um, in learning and knowledge and the rest of it as we're talking about today, are there any plans to make this African initiative more substantial in terms of having perhaps a center of African studies or going further? Because I know this post is for three years and perhaps there's a possibility to, to go forward, but are there any plans for something more concrete and substantial? Uh, well, as I, yeah, well, I mean, let me have a go, and then you can say a little bit about what you plan to do. Um, but as I said at the beginning, um, we're at an early stage uh, in this. The different elements already in place are one institutional partnership with Cape Town and one professor. We have got the funding for this professorship for the first three years, but I'm pretty confident that we will acquire funding to make this a permanent post. I think it's highly unlikely that it will not be a permanent post. Um, we are engaged, however, and indeed we have some people coming around to, to dinner later on this evening to talk more explicitly about how we develop financial support for this uh, initiative. Because we can put in some pump priming things, but I think if we, if we want to grow the research and have a greater focus for African research in the school, we will need, frankly, to attract more uh, financial support. We have a broad uh, community of supporters and alumni who are very helpful in advising us where we go. There are foundations, there are companies, there are individuals who are interested. And so I'm pretty confident that we will be able to turn it into something more uh, substantive. But our clear view was that unless we had a full-time leader for this initiative, then we would not succeed. And that's why we, we begun with appointing uh, a chair uh, in the hope that that can be the nucleus of a bigger initiative. But maybe you'd like to add a bit about the sort of things you plan to do. Well, uh, first of all, I, I don't, I'm not sure myself about the idea of a center. That's, that's too complicated for me to think about it. A center for African studies. Um, uh, for two reasons. One is that I think most of those centers are for helping Europe to understand Africa. Uh, it's not the same thing. Uh, most Africans who come to Europe to study don't study African studies. Eh? <laughs> they do something else, and it makes lots of sense. 
Uh, I think those centers can be useful in bridging the gap between, say, the Africans and the disciplines. That I can see as an important role, that if I come here, there's somebody who can say, I've been to Uganda, I know Uganda, but the best lawyer for you to talk to is that one there in that department. That I can see, but I, I really have not thought about in those in those terms. What I have thought about, however, is the really possibilities of bringing people here. Uh, mainly, my, my, as I said, I'm, I'm a little obsessed with this faculty problem because I believe, no matter what we what we do, the numbers are that most people will be trained in Africa. Okay, okay as I said, there are already one million people in African universities today, so they will never be trained abroad. That that million will be trained within Africa. So, and therefore we. We ought to think about how do we train that million in Africa. We can train other people outside, but uh, but really at the core of my thinking about what are you going to do with this one, you know, and that's going to take it place in Africa. And so, uh, I see more programs that bring people here. To uh, you know, you may have some PhD programs so forth. That's not that, but but, but things that were uh, joint workshops, uh, uh, sabbatical leaves, faculty from here going to teach, and, and again they need not be African specialists. They can be specialists on any subject that the university might want to, you know, to have access to and things like that. That's how I see it. Um, it's really how to strengthen the African university. That's, as I said, that's, uh, and, I, and I think it's, it's, it's doable. It's not, uh, uh, there's a lot of, going, a lot, it's again in Africa, unfortunately, when we're talking the language of raising, fundraising, we tend to underestimate what's going on in terms of experiments of surviving the university and all that. It's happening. I just talked a couple of weeks ago with the, the former head of the uh, African Investors uh, Union, uh, uh, and I mentioned this idea to him. And he was he said, "This is it. This is exactly what we, we should be doing." Um, we have people have now done their PhDs within Africa, and they're teaching universities. And it'd be nice for them to have exposure, just you know, because they're teachers. They're, if they come here six months and they go back here, redo their courses, do change their thinking about what they should be teaching, and they go back. I mean, the, the payoff is huge. Thank you very much. I think that was a very good question on which to uh, end. We've got all kinds of faculty we could send down there. We could send people down to teach them how to construct collateralized debt obligations, for example, which uh, no, no. may be one of the things you had in mind when you talked about uh, some aspects of development we might not actually need. But um, uh, thank you very much for delivering this. You may, uh, you, you'll probably discover around the school, you looked for the guidance on uh, inaugural lectures. You will find that there's quite a lot of professors here, and I can see one or two of them in the front here, who've been here for many years and still not delivered their inaugural lecture, actually. Um, but, uh, uh, so you've shown high performance running before you walk uh, in actually delivering one. Thank you very much for that. Um, just to say that there is a drink outside uh, for everybody except LSE students who, are, of course, are going straight back to the library because exams are uh, around the corner. Uh, but let's finally thank Chandika for an interesting evening.